Awesome, awesome. How many are happy to be in God's house this morning? Can you say amen? amen? Today is the first Sunday in 2013. Somebody give it up for 2013. We have two causes to celebrate. Number one, this is the first Sunday of a new year. Uh, but number two, today is Living Hope's nine-year anniversary. First Sunday in 2004, January 4th, 2004, we had our very first service. And uh, so nine years ago today, this journey began here in the city of Emeryville. And we're going to have an anniversary celebration at Thursday Thunder, which is the last Thursday of this month. By the way, we do not have Thursday Thunder every single Thursday anymore this year. We only have it on the fourth Thursday of the month. So if you come this Thursday expecting Thursday Thunder, you're going to be by yourself. (laughs) So, you know, I don't want to get an emergency call. Pastor, I'm at the church, but nobody's here. Uh, That will not be good for you. Uh, But the last Thursday, the fourth Thursday of this month, what is it, January 26th? What is the date of it? January 24th. We are having the, the fourth. 24th. We are having... Thursday Thunder, and we will be having our anniversary celebration on that date, and so uh, we want you to be here for that. So we're having Thursday Thunder once a month so that everybody can come. It's only once a month, so everybody can come. Amen. Amen. Mm. I am pumped about 2013. I am excited about 2013. I have new vision for 2013. I've got new clarity for 2013. And I'm forgetting 2012. And I'm forgetting 2011. I'm not going to remember the successes or the failures. Because it's a new day. And God has started a a new path. Come on, somebody. Now, Dave Ramsey talks about gazelle intensity. Gazelle intensity. Look at your neighbor and say gazelle intensity. What you're going to need to lay hold of what God is holding out for you in the year 2013 is gazelle intensity. Gazelle intensity. And this is what gazelle intensity is. The fastest animal in the jungle. Who is it? What is it? It is the cheetah, not the gazelle. However, when a cheetah chases a gazelle, he only catches that gazelle two out of every 19 times. You say, how is that so? Well, let me tell you why that is so. Because when a gazelle's life is in danger... It doesn't run with regular speed. It runs with gazelle intensity. That is, it all of a sudden, it begins to strain every muscle in its entire body, and it grows new muscles if it has to. That cheetah is right on its tail. It runs like the dickens. It runs like a bat out of hell. I mean, that thing runs like its life is in danger, and in fact, its life is in danger. It's either run or be dinner. And listen, there's some stuff that has been chasing you your entire life. And if you don't outrun it, it's going to catch you and run you down this year. But I'm saying that you're going to run with gazelle intensity this year. You're going to strain with every muscle in every fiber of your being. And not only are you going to outrun and overcome that stuff, but you're going to establish a new place of victory in your life, a new home base of victory in your life from which God is going to cause your feet to be like the, the hinds feet of the deer, like the feet of the deer. He's going to put your hinds feet in high places. Amen? Amen? Gazelle intensity. The problem is that most people begin the year with gazelle intensity, but end it with snail apathy. You begin it like a gazelle, and you end it like a snail. This is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. We tend to start the year with a bang and end it with a whimper. Well, not so in 2013. Look at your neighbor and say, not so. Not so so in 2013. Not so in 2013. Come on, I'm going to keep that gym membership longer than eight weeks. Come on, somebody. Somebody said, I don't make New Year's resolutions. I make New Year's commitments. See, the problem, the reason everybody falls short with their New Year's resolutions is because they make resolutions. You've got to make commitments, not resolutions. Listen, a commitment is just another way of saying a resolution, okay? It doesn't matter what you call it. If you call it a resolution or call it a commitment, call it whatever you want. I don't care what you call it. You got to make it and you got to keep it. The problem wasn't your terminology. (laughs) Oh, you called it the wrong term. There's the problem. No, the problem is not your terminology. The problem was somewhere along the way you lost hope. Somewhere along the way you lost encouragement. And somewhere along the way you lost steam and you lost 
the vision. But this year in 2013, we're going to hold on to all those things, and we're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about benefit and loss. He talks about profit and loss. Let me ask you a question. Have you stopped to look at the profit and loss statement of your life recently? Now, any company, it continues to exist by paying close attention to its profit and loss statement. And when the losses begin to outweigh the profits, they stop and they take a hard look at the way they're doing business. Let me tell you something. There is a profit and loss statement to your life, and you need to stop and evaluate it on a weekly and quarterly basis. That is, you have to stop and ask the question, are my losses greater than my profits? Are my benefits greater than my sacrifices? And if the answer to that question is not yes, then your life is not marketable. Follow me. In 2013, we're going to learn how to create a marketable lifestyle for ourselves. Your lifestyle must be marketable. The question is, if somebody could buy your lifestyle, not your life, we're not talking about the value of your life, because even if you have a crummy lifestyle, even if you have a crummy lifestyle, your life is invaluable. People become suicidal because their lifestyle is so messed up that they think their life is not worth anything. Let me tell you something. You can fix a messed up lifestyle, but... Your life is invaluable. The value of your life is not determined by the value of your lifestyle. Your life itself is invaluable, but sometimes your lifestyle isn't worth a nickel. The question is, if you could sell your lifestyle on eBay, would anybody buy it? Like if somebody put their lifestyle on eBay and said, if you pay $1,000, you can live as I live. I'm not talking about selling your life like becoming somebody's slave. I'm talking about the way you live your life. Are you happy with the way you live your life? Can you look at your life and say, other people should do this? That's what Paul meant when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate me as I imitate Christ. Got mixed up there. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, my lifestyle is marketable. That is, if I put my life on eBay, there would be a bidding war for my lifestyle. Who could you put your finger on and say, if this person's lifestyle were for sale, that is, if I could just pay a certain sum of money and, and live that person's lifestyle, man, I would pay it. I would find a way to pay it. I'd go into debt to get that lifestyle. Can that be said of yourself? Let me ask you something. If nobody would pay anything for your lifestyle, it's probably because you haven't paid anything for it. That is, look at the sacrifices that you've made to get to where you are. And you can determine the value of your lifestyle by starting with the benefits that you derive from your lifestyle and minusing the sacrifices that you've made from it. And if you have a positive number, that is the worth of your lifestyle. That is, when people look at your lifestyle, they see both your sacrifices and your benefits. Do they see more benefits than sacrifices, or do they see more sacrifices than benefits? You say, Pastor, this is a bunch of self-help stuff. No, it's not. It is very relevant to your spiritual life. Because if you are walking with Christ, when people look at your life, the first benefit they see is your relationship with Christ. But if all they see are sacrifices you've made and costs... If all they see is that walking with Christ has cost you everything but benefited you nothing, they don't want Christ because your lifestyle is not marketable. They don't want Christ because they look at your life. You wonder why most unbelievers don't want Jesus. It's because of the way believers live. They don't even know Jesus to not to like him or not like him. People say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Yeah, you just haven't met him yet. That's all. You can't meet him and not believe in him. If you just met him, that's why I don't call people unbelievers. I call them pre-believers. Because you don't know if you believe or not. Meet him and then tell me you don't believe him. But the only thing they have to go on is our lifestyle. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And so for me to develop a lifestyle that's marketable, that is for me to develop a lifestyle that people can look at and say, wow, Jesus Christ has done this man a lot of good. That's what I want people to say. Jesus Christ, what did you do to live that lifestyle? And if I can say Jesus and somebody would want that lifestyle, now I haven't just just made my lifestyle marketable, 
but I have made the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to people. Are you hearing me this morning? So Paul talks about cost and benefit, profit and loss. He talks about the profit and loss statement of his life in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and following. And the first thing that he tells us is that in order to gain Christ, he had to start by looking at his prophets and realizing that they weren't prophets anymore. They were losses. Stuff that he thought was a prophet, you know, like how much money he had. That's a secondary prophet, but that's not a primary prophet. He said, I count that loss. If I had to compare money to God, compare money to Christ, I get rid of the money. If I have to compare the car that I drive to Christ, I get rid of the car. If I have to compare the, the house that I live in to Christ, I get rid of the house. I count it all loss, he says. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In order to establish a proper view of your life, you've got to start by establishing Christ as the priority. And you only have established Christ as the priority when he becomes the thing of the most value in your life. That is, when you have, when you have assessed the value of everything else in your life and considered it all worthless compared to Jesus Christ, now you have started with the first proper priority of your life. In Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he starts, uh, he gives an example of a, a teacher who was teaching a class, and he brought a big bucket into the classroom, and he filled it with fist-sized rocks. And he said to the students, is this bucket filled? And they said, yeah, it's full. He said, great. And then he took some gravel and poured it in over the big rocks, and it filled in between the crevices of the big rocks. He said, now is it full? They said, yeah. Great. He took some sand and poured it over the gravel, and the sand slipped in between the, the crevices of the gravel. He said, now is it full? They said, probably not. He said, ah, you catch on fast. He pulled out a bucket of water and poured the water in, and the, and the water soaked through the sand and through the gravel and through the big rocks. He says, now is it full? They said, yes, now it's full. He said, great. What is the lesson that you derive from this? And somebody in the class lifted his hand and said, no matter how much stuff you got in your life, you can always get a little bit more. And he said, wrong, that's not the lesson. The lesson is, if you had not have started with the big rocks, you never would have got them in. Think if you started with water and sand. You can't stuff big rocks into water and sand. But you can start with big rocks and pour sand around them. He said, the lesson is, you must determine what the big rocks of your life are and start with those big rocks. You must determine what the major priorities of, the, of your life are and start with those big rocks. Start to fill your bucket with big rocks, with big priorities, and only then can you go to the smaller stuff, you know, the gravel and the sand and the water. The problem with most folks is they start with the gravel, sand, sand and water and then make excuses for the big rocks. Well, I don't have time to work out. That's right. I just have too busy of a schedule. I don't have time to pray. I would like to pray. I don't have time to spend with my wife. I don't have time for my kids. I don't have time for, we don't have time for the big rocks. I ain't got no time to go to church. I'm too busy. I don't have time for my Bible. Those are the big rocks. Those are, he said, you got to start with the big rocks. In 2013, you must start with the big rocks. Look at your neighbor and say, start with the big rocks. Start with the big rocks, and you've got to start by making Christ the first big rock. Matter of fact, the scripture calls Christ the chief cornerstone. That is, he is the chief big rock, and you've got to put him at the bottom and make him the foundation of your life. He is the first and the last, the cornerstone and the capstone, the beginning and the end. And when that is firmly set in place, only now are you off to the start of determining the way the profit and loss statement of your life should look. Now, we have determined eight big rocks for the year 2013, eight big stones for the year 2013 that we are going to create a plan for. By the end of 2013, if you stick with us and commit yourself to the process, you will have developed a plan for each of these eight big rocks in your life, and you'll pour the gravel around it. You know, the gravel is stuff like, you know, playing video games and watching TV and you know, <laughs> you know the, the little stuff that doesn't mean anything, but we constantly say we don't have time for the big stuff because we're too busy doing the little stuff. Right. Can I get a witness? Yeah. First big rock, your spirituality. The first big rock, your spirituality. Your relationship with God. Your personal, one-on-one, -on -one, non-mediated relationship with God. 
When I'm talking about your relationship with God, I'm talking about the relationship that you have with God outside of the church building. Because it's easy to develop a church house relationship with God. We come to church and we start singing and you sing too. We lift up our hands and pray. You lift up your hands and pray too. And that's all you do. The preacher says, turn in your Bible. That's when you turn to the word. But when you leave, since there's nobody to say, lift your hands and pray, you don't do it. (laughs) Developing a relationship with God is an unmediated thing. I'm talking about a spiritually disciplined, living, a a self-perpetuated, spiritually disciplined, living relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the first big stone. But in order for that stone to be a priority in your life, you've got to have a plan for it. If you don't have a plan for it, growth does not happen automatically. It only happens intentionally. And if you are not intentional about your spiritual growth, you will never grow spiritually. You'll be at the same place next year as you are this year. And so if that's the first big stone, you've got to treat it like the first big stone and develop a plan for it. And so the first thing we've done, the first resource we provided for you is a great book that I'm recommending to you. It's called A Path Through Mighty Waters which is the same as our theme for the year, A Path Through Mighty Waters. You can get it as an ebook on both on both Amazon.com and Google Play. And what it is, is it instructs you, it teaches you how to meditate on the Word of God day and night. Meditating on the Word of God day and night that establishes a process for developing spiritual depth that is going deeper. When you meditate on a verse, when you first hear a verse of Scripture, you don't have any depth in it, even if you memorize it. But the more you meditate on it, you know, I've, I've, I've been getting all these testimonies from people who have been saying, man, I thought I knew that scripture, but then I meditated on it, and halfway through the day, all of a sudden, I, I really heard it. You know, one guy said, yeah, you know, in the morning, I was like, you've made known to me the path of life. Okay, yeah, you've made known to me the path of life. Why am I still saying this? You've made known to me the path of life. He said, all of a sudden, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I got a revelation. Whoa! Yeah. You've made known to me the path of life! Yeah. I've been walking in the path of death, and I've been walking... You made known to... Oh, my God! He made known to me the path of life. He said, all of a sudden, I got a revelation. I sunk deep into the scriptures. And so you need spiritual depth, and you need a plan for spiritual depth. We're providing you with a great resource for that. It's the book, A Path Through Mighty Waters. It will teach you how to meditate on the word of God day and night. And I've also created a companion to the book, and that companion to the book is a website, A Path Through Mighty Waters blogspot.com. It's a blog in which every morning I take the, the devotion for the day. I take the uh, meditation for the day and I write a little devotion along with it and I have that up by 6 a.m. every morning. And you can come to that blog, that blog and every day I give you a little devotion to go alongside the book and to go alongside the devotion so that you can develop a pathway for spiritual depth. It's not going to happen in one night. It's not going to happen in one week. But if you do it for a year, you'll find that you have meditated on 84 verses of Scripture and you have, you have sunk deeply into those verses of Scripture. And so that's the start of your plan for spiritual growth. Yeah. The second mechanism that we've provided is what we call Abba University. Abba University provides breadth. Meditating on the Word of God provides depth. But breadth is a broad knowledge of Scripture. You also need to know the Bible from beginning to end, not just sink deeply into 84 verses. And so we've created a course called The Story of the Bible. It's four parts, four quarters, four 10-week quarters, $95 a course, And what these courses allow you to do is to gain an intimate knowledge of the story of the Bible from beginning to end, uh, the story. We're studying the story of the Bible from beginning to end in one year. We're going all the way through the Bible in one year and only one hour a week. And you can do it from the the comfort of your own home because it's an online course. And so we're encouraging everybody to take these two uh, these two powerful mechanisms that we're providing, these two pathways that we're providing so that you make it number one. Your number one spiritual goal is to develop depth in Scripture. Your number two spiritual goal is to develop breadth in Scripture. And then we supplement it. We also have things here at the church like prayer meetings and, and Sunday services and times of worship and Thursday thunder. We have small groups and we have lay pastoral communities. All of these things are designed to develop your spiritual life, but you have to understand the growth process that goes with these things and commit yourself to going forward in them and growing in them. Amen? Amen. So the first big stone is your spiritual life. You must grow in your spiritual life. You need to make a decision in 2013. I'm going to grow spiritually this year. Second, the second big stone is your physical life, your physical well-being. It's time to stop praying for healing all the time and start eating healthy. Come on, somebody. I mean, the Lord will heal you, and we're still going to pray for you. 
But we also need to cooperate with God's healing power and process. Okay? And so we're going to develop a plan for our physical lives. What is the plan? What is the plan for my eating? If I don't have a plan, I'm going to eat whatever presents itself to me. And if I eat whatever presents itself to me, what is going to happen to me is whatever happens to me when I eat whatever presents itself to me. You know, I told you before that I was in Korea and I was crying out to God, Lord, I wish I was 175 pounds. And the first thing the Lord said was, I'm not a genie, so don't you wish upon me. You did not rub a lamp and I come out. I'm not the God who gives you wishes. You ask and you receive. But the second thing the Lord said to me was, no, you don't. I said, no, Lord, I do. I wish I was 170 pounds. And the Lord said, no, you don't. I said, Lord, what do you mean? He said, you're exactly the weight you want to be. You're exactly the weight you want to be. I said, Lord, give me revelation. Because in my heart, I really feel like I desire to be 175 pounds. The Lord said, nobody put a gun to your head and said, eat these cookies or I'll pull the trigger. Eat them right now. Nobody saw you walk into the treadmill and said, you step on that treadmill, I'll shoot you in the kneecap. (laughs) Nobody put a knife to your jugular vein and said, eat until you feel like you're going to pop or else I'll cut it. I will cut you deep. Nobody forced you to do it. You did it all by yourself. All by your lonesome. If you want to be 175 pounds, then do it. Then do it. Come on, somebody. We have been living under the lie that life has happened to us. Let me tell you something. Life didn't happen to you. You happened to life. When I was in college, there was a poem that I learned. And and I can't remember the the name of the author of the poem, but uh, extremely beautiful worded, beautifully worded poem. It says, life, the hound, equivocal, comes at a bound, either to rend you or to befriend you. I cannot tell the hound's intent till he has sprung at my bare hand with tooth or tongue. Till then I stand and wait the event. And I thought, that's the stupidest poem I've ever heard before in my life. I mean, it sounds so nice, but it's so retarded. I mean, because think about it. Life is a dog. And it just jumps on you. And you better hope it licks you. But if it bites you, there's nothing you can do about it. Life just jumps. All you can do is just stand with your hand out. Please let life lick me. Let me tell you something. If life bites you, bite it back. Life is not an event. It's not something that happens to you. Life is a gift. That's why the scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God gives you life as a gift, but you got to take dominion over that gift and you got to use it. You got to turn it. You got to grab the day by the throat. You got to learn how to carpe diem. Come on, somebody. Stop letting life happen to you and start happening to life. Some of us need to learn how to get up earlier in the morning. You know, I'm not naturally a morning person. How many of you say, I'm not a morning person? Lift your hand. I'm just not a morning person. I'm just not a morning. Now, those of you who are sitting next to them, just slap them right now. Just... You know, I prayed, I prayed in December of last year. I said, Lord, would you help me, please, to get up early in the morning in 2013? The Lord said, what time do you want to get up? I said, Lord, I would love to get up at 6 a.m. He said, great, set an alarm. God gave me an, a revelation. He said, you can get up whatever time you want to get up. That's why I gave you an alarm clock. So I set that alarm for 6 a.m. It went off at 6 a.m. on January 1st of this year. And when I heard that alarm go off, I felt like somebody had hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer. Bam! It was painful. I said, oh, no, God. I almost just turned it off and rolled back over. But see, I made the mistake of reading a guy named Michael Hyatt. He wrote a blog entry called How to Become a Morning Person. And the first thing he said was set an alarm and put it across the room. So you got to get up and go across the room to turn it off. And so I had to get out of bed. Otherwise, it's going to wake up my wife and baby. So I'm laying there like, oh, no, oh my God. I mean, you know, the anticipation of it, because I'm thinking, then I'm going to get up, and I'm going to feel tired all day long, you know. And so I got up, and I went over and turned off the alarm, and all of a sudden, I felt alive. It's like, hey, that wasn't that bad. That wasn't that bad. The next day, 
That alarm went off at 6 a.m., and I felt like somebody had just kicked me in the shins as hard as they possibly can. It was painful. I'm just laying there, and like, oh, no, I ain't get up. But by the time I got up, I, I thought, I'm not, the time I got my pants on, I felt alive. <laughs> went downstairs and got my cup of coffee. It was like Popeye eating spinach. <laughs> you know, I was alive. I'm ready to go. Yesterday I was at, at the ark at church, having church, and all of a sudden I felt the Spirit of God come on me. I felt grace come. I said, Lord, what is this grace? He said, it's 5 a.m. grace. Amen. I said, Ika. <laughs> to my wife last night, I think the Lord gave me 5 a.m. grace. Set the alarm. Man, that alarm went off at 5 a.m. this morning. I thought, oh, no. Wait a minute. See, I learned by now. I can get up whatever time I want to get up. You know, when you wake up in the morning and it feels like somebody just hit you in the face with a sledgehammer? You know what it is when it feels like somebody just punched you in the Adam's apple and you can't breathe? You know, when it feels like somebody is choking you out with a necktie as hard as they can? When it feels like a bodybuilder just laid down on top of you and won't get up? You know what I'm talking about? When you, you, know, you know what it is? It's anticipation. The problem's your mind, not your body. Because you're so busy thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, that you psych yourself into the experience of I can't. You need to take that phrase, I can't, out of your vocabulary, treat it like a demonic chant. Treat it like witchcraft. And repent every time you say, I can't. You need to get that out of your vocabulary. Michael Hyatt said, step one to becoming a morning person is change your Language. Instead of saying I'm not a morning person, say I am a morning person. I'm a morning person. I'm a morning person. How many of you here are morning people? Come on, somebody. Say I am a morning person. I am a morning person. There's no such thing as a morning person or a non-morning person. Simply somebody who has trained themselves to get up in the morning and somebody who hasn't. Come on, you've been living on that 10 a.m. grace for so long, you need to at least get some 9 a.m. grace. You've been living on that 8 a.m. grace. At least get some 7 a.m. grace. Come on. You can take it a step further. And no, you don't have to do what I do. You know, Pastor Daniels got up here and said, you men need to be up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Pray. I said, oh, Lord. You men need to be up at 3 o'clock in the morning praying over your households. And I prayed. I said, Lord, please give me a way of escape. You know, the scripture says in every trial, he also provides a way of escape. And afterwards, Pastor Daniels said, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that because not everybody can do what I do. I said, you are gracious God. <laughs> I don't have 3 a.m. grace yet, but I got 5 a.m. grace right now. I got it yesterday. What kind of grace do you have? Maybe you had 8 a.m. grace. Ask God for 7.30 grace. Ask God for 7 a.m. grace and get up and seek his face. See, I don't have enough energy in my day. There's many ways to get energy. You can take drugs, speed, crack. I don't recommend it, but it's can. You could drink coffee, a lot of caffeine, you know, take some uh, uh, energy drinks, you know, just keep, you know, a whole bunch of Red Bull stocked in your fridge, you know, those demonic energy drinks that, you know. Coffee in moderation is okay. I have one cup in the morning. That's all. That's just my one cup of coffee. It's good. You know, I'm not going to be addicted. I had seasons in my life where I was addicted. You know, I'd just be standing there with a pot, not even a cup, just a pot, drinking out of the pot. The devil is a liar. I've done grown out of that. But you know what? You know what the, the best way to increase your energy is? Exercise. I got a way that's even better than that, cat. It's called prayer. Amen. Get on your knees and pray fervently for one hour. Try this. Just try it. I mean, get on your knees and pray fervently. I'm not talking about silent meditation. Now, let me tell you something about your spiritual life. You need more than silence. Yes, meditation on Scripture is foundational, but you, you need both quiet time and loud time. Yeah. That is, you need time when you're completely silent before the Lord, but then you've got to learn how to open your mouth. Now, here's what I learned. I do not meditate on Scripture at 5 a.m. Because I will meditate myself into a prophetic dream. I will come out of it and say, I was in the Spirit. For the last three hours, I was seeing heavenly things. So what I've learned is that the first thing I do is rigorous, intensive prayer. Vigorous, fervent, effectual prayer. I'm talking about stirring. you got to learn how to pray it forward in 2013. 
I'm talking about pray it forward. Listen, you know when you're praying something forward and when you're just praying it still. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the, you know when your prayer is moving something. When your prayer is moving the spirit, not just waiting for the spirit to move you. When your prayer is coming into the presence of God, not just waiting for the presence of God to come into you. I'm talking about getting past that passive, apathetic prayer that just wakes up in the morning and says, 2468, who do I appreciate? Yay, God. Good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, the kind of prayers that don't go anywhere. I'm talking about pushing to the next level in prayer. You know what? You have an hour of fervent, intentional prayer. You just feel alive. You feel like you can climb a mountain. You feel like you can scale a wall. You feel like, like David said, blessed be the Lord my rock who teaches my hands to war. I can bend a bow of bronze. Come on, somebody. It affects even your physical body. So the first big stone is your spirituality. The second big stone is your physicality, being physically healthy. The third big stone is your family, your primary relationships. Husbands, it's your wife and then your kids. Wives, it's your husband and your kids. Children, it's your parents. And if you are single and living alone in a house by yourself, then it's praying for your wife and your kids to come or your kids and your husband. It's praying for your family, okay? Or maybe it's still your parents. You know, whatever it is, your primary relationships, your immediate family. Do you have a plan for that stone? Or are you just kind of letting it roll out as it is? Amen. I mean, do you have a plan? Like, have you assessed the quality, the condition, the state of your family, of your household, of your immediate family right now? What is the state of it? You've got to have a plan for moving it forward. You can't just sit and wait for things to get better. It's not going to drop out of the sky. How about a plan for your finances? You know, we spend so much time praying for money instead of paying our bills. Praying for a blessing. How about saving for a blessing? Come on, somebody. What is your, what is your financial plan? Your finan- having a plan for your finances and then a plan for fellowship with the body of Christ. Have you assessed the state of your connection to the members of the body of Christ? Have you assessed the state, the condition of your relationship with the local church? And what are you doing about it? Are you just making excuses? Well, this is why I'm not connected. Or are you making steps and plans to get connected? How about ask somebody out to lunch today after church and get connected? Come on, somebody. And then the sixth is a plan for service in the local church. What is your plan for service in the local church? The seventh is your vocation. That is, what are you going to do with your life? Your vocation, your lifelong vocation. You say, well, I want to be a doctor. Okay, are you in med school? No. Are you applying to med school? No. Then you don't want to be a doctor. You need to take (laughs) steps. I want to be a pilot. It's so easy to say I want to be. But to actually do it is something else. We need to make, take steps. You know, there's many of you in here that are writers. But let's, listen, God is not going to drop a book down out of the sky and cause it to fall in your lap. He didn't even do that for Peter or Paul or John. Even the ones who wrote scripture didn't have it fall out of the sky to them. Peter had to take a pen and start writing something before God had something to inspire and to anoint. You've got to be doing something for God to anoint, but many of us are simply waiting for something financial to happen to us, waiting for something vocational to happen to us, and you're, you're, you're treating life like a dog. Is it coming to rend me or to befriend me? Too many believers that are just standing like this. What are you doing? Well, I'm waiting, waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm standing on the promises. No, you need to get up off of your blessed assurance and do something. Mm, mm. And then the eighth is your mission in life. That is the missional character of your life. What are you going to do? The eighth is really how God can pull the first seven together to bring it into, to combine it into a lifestyle that brings about the kingdom of God, that manifests the kingdom of God. And so all eight of these, uh, uh, really what we're doing is we're working out of the first house, second house, third house, and fourth house, house paradigm. Your first house is yourself, your spirituality and your physicality. Your second house is your primary relationships, your spouse and your kids. Your third house is the local church, 
which is your fellowship with the brothers and your service in the body. And then your fourth house is everything you do in the world, which is your vocation and your mission. And really, we need to understand how to improve each of these houses. And so what we're going to do is about every six weeks, we're going to roll out a new assessment and a new tool for planning. And we're going to put you through a process of developing a plan for each area of, these, of your life, developing a plan for each area of your life so that by the end of the year, you will have a comprehensive plan for each of these eight major areas of your life. That is, you'll be able to look back at your life at the end of this year and say, I've got a plan for the eight stones. The eight major stones are all in place. Now I can pour the gravel and the sand and the water in around it, but I've got the eight stones solidly in place, and I've got a plan for it. And so you're going to have to learn how to review your life on a weekly basis. You're going to have to learn to, to, say, to look back at the end of the week and say, have I done what's important? Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn, have to learn how to, how to rejoice in what your hands have made just as God rejoiced in what his hands have made. Yeah. And you're going to have to learn how to tweak the system. Mm-hmm. Some of us have to learn how to be cleaner. Mm-hmm. When I was in seminary one day, I was a broke seminarian. I was a quintessential broke seminarian. I was the proverbial broke seminarian. If you looked up broke seminarian in the dictionary, there'd be a picture of me. <laughs> and one day I ran out of money. I was dead broke. I was completely broke. I didn't even have a dollar. To, I wanted to call my mom. Say, Mama, can you send me a cup of milk? You know, I, I just, I was that hungry. And I cried out to God for money. And God said, clean your room. I mean, my room was a mess. Pile of clothes about three feet high. Hadn't done laundry in three months. The Lord said, clean your room. I said, Lord, I'll clean later. Please send me money. And God did not answer. Because how many know that God does not like to repeat himself? And neither does he offer explanations. So I start cleaning my room, and I get to the bottom of the pile. It took me all day. Got to the bottom of the pile, checked a pair of pants before throwing it in the washing machine and discovered a check for $100 inside that somebody had given me six months prior, but I forgot about because it was under the pile. Let me tell you something. Many of you here have riches that are already in your household. You've got treasures that are already in your household, but you just need to excavate until you come to those treasures. It's in your house. It's just under the pile. This year, we're going to get to the bottom of the pile and find the riches that are already there. Come on. Can I get a witness? So Paul says, whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Paul says, I have set these major stones in place, and Christ, my relationship with Christ, is the primary stone. It's the chief cornerstone, but all of these other stones flow so naturally out of that one stone that if any of these other stones are out of place, it's because the first stone is out of place. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has taken hold of me. He says, I'm not perfect yet. How many know? I'm not perfect. I'm not there. You can look around and say, I'm not perfect. But the problem is we tend to use that as an excuse. And most of the time when we say, I'm not perfect, it's to avoid accountability. Why'd you do that? Well, I'm not perfect. (laughs) I was doing premarital counseling one time with a couple. Nobody in this church, nobody even knows, so don't even think about who it was. They said, will you marry marry us? I said, sure. And so I sat down with them, and I shot the breeze. I wanted to make them feel real comfortable, and they felt real comfortable. And all of a sudden, I said, are you guys having sex? Uh, 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 I'll take that as a yes. I said, so how do you do that? I said, what do you mean? How do you do that and, and yet say you're walking with Christ? And the guy said, well, I would say we're not perfect. <laughs> well, that's a given. Neither am I. None of us are perfect. But, and I'm not even saying that we never fail or we never make mistakes. The question is, do you take responsibility and accept accountability? We're not saying we're not going to make any mistakes this year. Listen, let me let you in a little secret. You and I are going to make a lot of mistakes this year. Just get it inside your mind and heart now. We're going to make some mistakes, and that's okay. But when we do make mistakes, we're going to take responsibility and accept accountability, and we're not going to use our lack of perfection as an excuse to stay in the state we are. But we're going to say, as Paul said, I'm not already perfect, but I'm pressing. I don't care if you're not perfect. Are you pressing? 
Are you reaching? Are you pressing? Or are you just wallowing in a pit of your own failure? See, typically we fall down in the pit of failure and we just lay there and we cry. Everything's falling apart. Like the man at the, at the pools of Bethesda. I have nobody. There's nobody to help me into the water when the angel stirs the water. Just crying. No, it's time to get up. It's time to take responsibility. It's time to accept accountability and begin to press toward the mark of the high calling. And he says, here's how I do it. He said, I forget what's behind. Forgetting the failures and successes of 2012. I don't dwell on the past. I forget what's behind. And he says, and I strain towards what's ahead. That word strain is so important. You know, I love when I watch the Olympics, I love watching like the the 100-meter dash or the 500-meter dash. I don't like watching a marathon. (laughs) Number one, it takes too long. But even when the guy is winning, you know, when they show the guy who's going to, obviously he won, right? Because everybody else is like a half hour behind him. It's, you know, marathons are not won by like a moment. You know, it's like he was a 100-yard dash. He lost by one-eighteenth of a second. But the marathon, he won by an hour and a half. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, you know. But when, even when you see the guy who won, you feel bad for him. That guy looks all riggered and jacked up. You know, he's coming to the finish line you know, you're like, somebody just, I just want to carry that poor fella. I just want to help him over the finish line. He's dehydrated, emaciated. He looks, but when you see, when you see these guys running the 100-yard dash, I love when they show it in slow motion. I mean, those guys are not just running with their legs. It's not like they show your, their legs and their legs are just bulging with definition. I mean, they're running with every muscle in their entire body. I mean, they're, they're running with their elbow. You're like, look at that muscle on his elbow. He got an elbow muscle. Look at that. That muscle. I thought that was a bone. That's a muscle. Look at him flexing it. He's even running with his face. I mean, those guys run with their necks. You know, their necks are sticking out. They run with every fiber of their being. And when they're about to cross the finish line and you know it's close, they start sticking their chest out when they come close. If I can just get a chest hair ahead of the guy next to me, I won. I mean, I'm, if I can win by a, a, by a, a by the, put my nose, if I can win by a nose hair, I won. I just got to get something across the finish line before he does. And, man, those guys are pressing towards, I mean, this is, pre- I mean, straining. This is the image that Paul is giving us. He said, I strain toward the mark of the high calling. I'm pressing toward it. And when he he says that I might win, look at this, verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to win. Now, when Paul says I want to win, he's not talking about beating you. Listen, I'm not racing you. That's why I said you don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. You're not racing me. You're racing you. You know what? I might not pray as much as you pray this year, but I'm going to pray more than I prayed last year. Are you? That's all I'm asking. Pray more than you prayed in 2012. Beat yourself. I'm going to know more scripture than I knew in 2012. I might not be able to give as much as you give, but I'm going to give more than I gave. I might not be able to save as much as you save, but I'm going to save more than I saved. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to make my life better than my life was last year. That's what growth means. And in order to beat myself, I got to strain. I'm reaching for what's ahead. He says, I want to win. And he says, I want to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. You know what Paul's saying? I shouldn't be saved right now. I'm a Christian. I was a Christian killer. I absolutely should not be saved. It was only the grace of God and the purpose of God. God had a purpose, and so he snatched me. So I'm going to put my entire being into snatching the purpose for which he snatched me. I'm going to get all of it. I'm not going to leave anything out. God, what was it that you had in mind when you saved me? That's what I'm going to do. You know what? None of us are saved by accident. None of us are. The question is, do you value the gift of salvation so intently that you're willing to give your entire life to lay hold 
of the purpose for which God saved you? Are you striving to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of you? If so, then you're going to work your tail off to grow and to create a plan for growth in every area of your life. That's what it's all about. The theme for this year is a path through mighty waters. God is making a path through mighty waters. But the thing that you and I need to understand is that God making a path through mighty waters doesn't do us any good if we're not willing to walk that path. Imagine it. The children of Israel, they're standing at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's behind them. Moses stretches out his staff and holds it all night long. And the wind blows and the waters part. And they're still standing there. And Moses is going, come on, let's go. God made a path through the mighty waters. And people, I ain't going in there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going there. And then Pharaoh's army starts attacking them and killing them. And they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, save us from Pharaoh's army. God says, I did. It's called the path, but you're refusing to walk in. Have you ever stopped and thought that the things that are devouring you are simply having access to your life because you're not walking the path? Jesus made a path through mighty waters when he walked on the water coming to his disciples. He didn't have to part the waters in order to make a path. He walked right on top of them. Lord, I don't see a path. I do. When are the waters going to part? They're not. You're going to walk on them. But Peter had to be willing to get out of the boat in order to walk that path. Jesus made the path, but only one disciple walked it. Are you going to be that one this year? I want to be the disciple who gets out of the boat. I want to be the disciple that walks the path with Jesus. God is making a path through mighty waters, but we must be intentional about walking. Getting out of the boat is about intentionality. It's about saying, I'm not going to allow my life to remain as it is. Even if it's great, even if it's awesome, I will never get to the point where I'm simply maintaining. I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow. And I am going to live a life that's a life of thanksgiving for so great a salvation. So great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, I speak your blessing over this house today the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that your spirit would fall heavy on every heart, that your spirit would fall heavy on every mind. I pray that you would impart that excitement, that enthusiasm, that joy that comes from vision. God, so many in this house this morning haven't felt enthusiasm in a long time because we haven't had a vision in a long time. We haven't had a vision in a long time because we just feel hopeless. But God, today, I pray you'd break that hopelessness. Remove it. Remove it. Remove it. Remove it in Jesus' name. Replace it with vision. Vision for our life with you. Vision for health. Vision for relational well-being. Vision for financial provision. I say by the word of the Lord that there's new businesses in this room right now. New entrepreneurs. There's new writers. New developers. Designers. There's newness in this room. Newness in this room. New things. God wants to do a new thing. Many of you have always dreamed about stuff all your life. You say, I've always dreamed about doing this. One day I'm going to do it. Instead of saying, one day I want you to take out your calendar and mark out the day. On this day, I'm going to start. And then make provisions and preparations from this day till that day. I'm going to do it. Say, I've always had this book in my heart. Well, you better get it out of your heart and onto a piece of paper. Or else 10 years later, it'll still be in your heart. But you know what happens? If you don't get it out, it starts to die in your heart. In 10 years, you'll be saying, I had this book in my heart, but I never wrote it. But make sure as you pursue these things that are a part of your vision, make sure they don't, undertake, they don't overtake your primary vision. That's to walk with the Lord. Make sure Jesus is the cornerstone of all of it. Make sure he's the center of it. Make sure he's the life of it. 
Make sure he's the biggest stone in your bucket. That he's the biggest priority of your life. Many of you have been chased by a cheetah for years. You're that gazelle. And you've been chased by a cheetah for years and years and years. But this year you're going to outrun that cheetah. This year that cheetah is going to get tired of chasing you. Make a decision. This year I'm going to get past this thing. This year I'm not taking this thing into the next year. This year I'm getting past this thing. This year I'm going to walk free. You can do what you want to do this year. God is granting you the authority. Some of you are going to have to use very human systems to do it because God is not going to create new systems. You say, but it's a world system. I don't want to get entangled in a world system. Let me tell you something. The moment a son of the kingdom stands in that world system, it becomes a kingdom system. The scripture says that all things, whether thrones or powers or dominion or authority or governments, all things were created by him and for him. That thing was created for Christ, and it belongs to you. You're going to stand in it. You're going to use it with authority and power. God is making you fruitful. So I bless you this morning with fruitfulness. I bless you with fruitfulness. I bless you with encouragement. I bless you with joy. I bless you with joy. I bless you with a new ability to hope. I bless you with new encouragement, with new inspiration. I bless you with longevity. It's not going to fizzle out in eight weeks this year. You're going to determine your practices for, three, for 2013, and you're going to repeat them 365 times. You're going to make it a lifestyle, not just an activity. And I speak blessing over you today in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I bless you to become great, to do all that God has put in your heart to do. I remove smallness of thinking from your mind and heart. I remove fear and confusion. I replace it with clarity. And I bless you with the blessing of the Lord. The blessing of heaven and the blessing of earth. With fruitfulness. Every kind of fruitfulness. In Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Hallelujah. Just where you are, just lift your hands to the Lord. Just begin to worship Him. Just for a moment. Just begin to worship Him. Hallelujah. Just commit this year to Him. You crown the year with your goodness. Your paths drip with abundance. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my way. Hmm. You've made known to us the paths of life. We worship you. We worship you. We worship and adore you. In Jesus' name. In just a moment, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, nobody's looking around, I just want to ask, is there anybody here? You say, I need to meet this Jesus. I need to know him. I don't know him, but I want to know him. Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you heard it again and again and again, but you never invited him to come live in your heart. I mean, not really. You never made a decision that you're going to walk with him. You're going to learn how to walk with him. You're going to walk it out with him. You say, but I'm ready right now. If that's you, just lift your hand right where you are. You say, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to provide opportunities in every service this year for people to receive Jesus Christ. We're going to see people get saved this year. Amen? Amen. Father, I just bless your people with every blessing in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. Give the Lord a shout of praise, and we are dismissed.